if peace be indivisible, this is not peace yet. For even at this moment, we dare not forget that war still rages and that British and Americans are being wounded or killed every hour and that many who have won this victory in Europe will again have to screw their courage to the sticking point and risk their lives. Yet when all is said, it remains a moment of immense deliverance. It is not only that never again need women in London start at the sound of the telephone because they fear the siren. It is rather that the knowledge that children will play on swings in the camp at Belson, that all over Europe, the prisoners and the persecuted are trudging homewards. We are no nearer the golden age of peace, but we have won the right to hope. Well, sadly, that was not taken from a European newspaper editorial from this spring weekend, although we continue to pray for peace uh, in Europe, as Matt has just led us in. But rather, a European newspaper editorial written in the spring of 1945, and hence an editorial at written before VE Day, that is, Victory in Europe Day, when a golden age of peace was brought in, and yet after D-Day, Deliverance Day, when Allied troops successfully landed on the beaches of Normandy in World War II. Accordingly, at the time of the editorial, there was not perfect peace yet. Uh, nevertheless, Europe had won the right to hope. The guns had not ceased completely. Some were still being shot at by the enemy. But victory was now assured and hope was now certain for the Normandy beach landings had made them so. And so by summer, children who had missed their fathers would be on the swings. And the persecuted prisoners who trudged home now would be home then for a golden age of peace was coming soon. Friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you trust in the deliverance of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you too have wonderfully won the right to hope. For you to live between D-Day and V-Day. For the D-Day of all history has already occurred. Uh, not in 1944 in an English Channel crossing, but in 33 AD through a Jerusalem cross. For there, in that one pivotal moment of history, the Son of God walked on the evil sands of this earth and in his rescue mission was shot at by the enemy and yet marched on to victorious rescue, delivering you and I who were once imprisoned. D-Day has occurred in Jesus' cross and resurrection. And so Christians await the certain hope of VE Day, a golden age of peace to come. But as a result, where are Christians now? Well, we who are once prisoners are kind of trudging home amid gunfire. We walk home with newspaper editorial in hand, sometimes with sadness because of our past uh, imprisonment, sometimes with joy because of our freedom today, but either way, we walk towards a certain home and with visions of our, in our mind of a golden age to come, 
and of war-torn land soon renewed and restored, and children on the swings in the summer sun. If you've been with us in this uh, series, uh, this mini-series in Revelation 21 and 22, we've been doing just that. For the last book of the Bible acts like an angelic uh, newspaper editorial written between uh, D-Day and V-Day. The book of Revelation as a whole speaks of a spiritual war and a war which rages on today. And yet in these final two chapters, we get this glorious, angelic editorial of what the golden age of peace will be like when we get home. And so thus far in this series, we've considered two questions. At one, who is going home? And two, what will our home be like? And the VE Day picture that the angel has painted for us so far, it is a picture of persecuted prisoners trudging home to reclaim an inheritance beautifully restored, a land now free from all threat, free from all their own wartime failure, and a picture of children who once thirsted now playing in the everlasting waters of life with their beloved heavenly father pushing them on the eternal swing set. But here, uh, here in this final section, uh, the new creation editorial ends and the, and the apostle John essentially uh, awakes from this heavenly vision that this futuristic, uh, angelic newspaper editorial and realizes that it is not quite VE day yet. For John then, just like Christians now, was still trudging home. And so what will be the final message from heaven for those who are waiting for it? Brothers and sisters, how should we wait for the new creation? How should we wait for the new creation? Turn with me your Bibles uh, to Revelation 22, uh, very last page of Scripture. And if you're able, please do stand uh, with me for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 22, uh, starting at verse 6. And the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must take place soon. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates, outside of the dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel 
to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And I warn anyone, everyone, who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all. Amen. Please be seated. As I said a moment ago, in verse 6, John returns to reality with a bit of a bump, doesn't he? Uh, For the glorious uh, vision of prisoners uh, returning to the beautiful city of safety in, in chapter 21 have disappeared now before John's eyes. And the picture of the golden age of peace to come where, where children play in the, in the waters of life forever in verse 5 ends. And so accordingly, in verse 6, we may imagine John, remember, on the island of Patmos now alone. And accordingly, writing those most disappointing of words that come from great pieces of fiction. And I woke up and it was all just a dream. It wasn't just a dream, was it? The editorial has now reached its, uh, its end, and, and the prophecy is now concluded, but the one who told John of what was coming still remains with him. Indeed, the angel says to him in verse 6, these words are trustworthy and true. What I've just revealed will certainly occur. And to confirm it, in verse 7, John hears another voice from heaven, the voice of the risen Lord Jesus, saying, Behold, I am coming soon. This new creation, this, this glorious home is assured because of the victorious Lord Jesus, the fact that he has risen from the dead and he has won that decisive battle over sin and death. But as a result of, of hearing that, that that lovely war will be over soon editorial and recognizing that the angel's dispatch would come true, what does John do next? Well, evidently John is, is so filled with excitement of this message of victory and hope that in verse 8, John falls down and worships God's messenger. In wartime Britain, uh, shortly after D-Day, uh, a very amusing photograph appeared uh, in the newspapers. For in the amusing photograph in question stood uh, a number of very important people, uh, Church of England clergymen and, and military generals, and, and politicians were all there with their heads Uh, bowed low, for in the photograph was taken a very prestigious uh, medal ceremony awarded for immense bravery on D-Day. And the one receiving that that prestigious honor, uh, the one at the very center of, of the photograph, was the one who had first brought news that Europe had won the right to hope and that the golden age of peace uh, was now coming. For the combatant in question had bravely delivered the message to allied soldiers on Normandy beaches that a strategic gun battery had been destroyed by paratroopers, such that those scared soldiers knew that they were safe 
and knew that more help was coming and knew that they could march on to victory now. In fact, the one who gave the speech at that very serious and, and somber medal ceremony told how this member of the Air Force had gone through bullets and bombs and driving rain to convey the message of hope that had come. And who was this brave messenger of that future? Well, it was no less than the Duke of Normandy. He had been the first one uh, to bring this message. And so returning to that photograph, what was so amusing about that high, all those high-ranking people all saluting the Duke of Normandy as he received his medal? Surely such worship such solemnity and saluting were, were only right until you realize that the Duke of Normandy in the photograph was a pigeon. The one who first delivered the message of hope and he was receiving all worship from these VIPs was an ugly three-year-old carrier pigeon. Friends, how should we wait for the new creation? Point one, do not Salute the servants of the word, worship God. Point one, do not salute the servants of the word, worship God. In verse 8, the, the apostle John is, is rebuked harshly. For, for John hears the glorious message of the, of the golden age of peace to come from God's winged messenger, and he decides to salute. Indeed, John falls down at his feet and he worships the angel who has brought him this heavenly vision, which may have been understandable on one level but it's ultimately all rather silly. And why is it silly? Well, the angel tells him in verse 9, I'm just a fellow servant with you, and your brothers the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Friends, what do we do sometimes when we hear of the certain message of hope of the gospel? What do we sometimes do with those who are the first to, to tell us about the new creation? Well, sometimes those who become rightly thrilled about heaven wrongly worship the one who tells them about it. Well, just like in Acts 14, and Paul went to Lystra and told people there the good news of heaven, and then some started to worship Paul as if he were a god. Sometimes Christians will honor and praise and worship the messenger who delivers the news of victory, rather than the victor himself. Metaphorically, they, they start to salute dumb and dirty carrier pigeons rather than the one who died in battle for them. I think that might sound all, all very ridiculous when we think about it. Many of us are prone to doing that today. Indeed, as I think back on my own life, I think back to my years at a university when my, my faith really came alive, and I think back to certain men uh, in my church who first faithfully exposited uh, the Bible to me and described what heaven would be like. What did I do? Well, well, in some measure, I started to worship them, I think. Obviously, I didn't fall at their feet and, and bow down. I didn't give them uh, shiny medals for a great sermon. But in my useful Christian excitement and, and immaturity, sometimes I often ended up honoring the servants of the word far more than the very word of life himself. So Christian writers became new heroes, and I, I couldn't stop speaking about uh, uh, other certain preachers. And, and in some ways, in some ways, those writers and preachers were worthy of my thanks 
that they faithfully brought me that the message of hope in the face of many secular bullets at a very liberal university, and they very faithfully delivered to me the good news of Christ in, in, in all the driving rain of a prevailing immorality. But friends, worshiping mere servants of the word is silly. Because not only will those who bring us the gospel fail us at times by their pigeon-like plainness or their greedy behavior or their many bird-brained actions. Worshiping mere servants of the word is silly because God alone is to be worshipped. And we have been made to worship the one who will bring us safely home. Friends, the proper response uh, to talks, uh, these talks in Revelation, or indeed any sermon preached in this pulpit, should not be evidenced primarily by your compliments to the preacher at the door as you leave, or, or by a flattering email or a social media like midweek, although I always appreciate encouragement. Rather, the proper response to the hope of heaven should be evidenced primarily in your passion of singing the final hymn and in your private prayers of praise to God during the course of this week when you turn off your phone and you shut the bedroom door. Friends, though it may sound very obvious indeed, perhaps you need to be reminded, those who have been delivered from death, those who are now walking home to victory, they may cherish the dropped message of hope, but they do not spend all their days saluting the pigeon. Christian pastors and Christian preachers and Christian parents and, and Christian peers are to be respected when they are faithful in carrying the, the message of the hope of heaven, but never worshipped. For those who await the new creation do not salute the servants of the word. They worship God. Friends, worship God. And so no doubt, uh, returning to our text, no doubt, uh, rather sheepishly in verse 10, John gets back uh, to his feet. But before John even has time to, to shake the dust off his jacket, John is told by the angel again. He's kind of told off again, isn't he? Verse 10, look with me. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near, second point this morning. Do not seal up the word. The time of justice is near. Do not seal up the word. The time of justice is near. What is the angel telling John not to do here? Well, at first glance, it's, it's all rather confusing, isn't it? Indeed, we perhaps imagine the, the angel snatching the scissors off John, like a parent of a young child as he, he cuts the tape and tries to wrap the package. Why is John told not to seal the envelope? Well, just turn with me quickly to Daniel chapter 12. Uh, for Daniel is... Uh, the other major book in the Bible, which speaks of the end times. And in Daniel chapter 12, we get a very similar incident as this occurring. For right at the end of this Old Testament book, uh, the, the prophet Daniel comes face to face with an angel. And the angel also describes what will happen at the end. But then the angel says to Daniel at uh, chapter 12, verse 4, hopefully you're there by now. But you, Daniel, shut up the words, and seal the book until the end of time. And Daniel, keen to know when these last days would be, says, verse 8, what shall be the outcome of these things? How will I know when we are in the last days? And the angel replies, verse 9, go in your way, Daniel, 
For the words are shut up and sealed until the end. But know that many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. In short, Daniel, you live in the wrong period of salvation history. The Son of Man has not yet delivered his people. The battle against evil will be won when Jesus comes. And those in those days after Jesus' deliverance, some people will purify themselves, some people will be holy, and some people will keep on acting wickedly. But you, Daniel, you don't live in those last days. So you have to seal up this prophecy because it is not a message to be opened today. But in contrast... Returning to Revelation 22, please be flicked back there. What does the angel say to John this time? Well, the angel says this time to John, do not seal up the words, for the time is now near. Verse 11, let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. For these are the last days. After Jesus has won the decisive battle at the cross, when people will show what side they are on. When some will wear the the military uniform of evil, dressing themselves in immorality, being filthy, and some will wear the pure uniform of Christ, dressing themselves in righteousness. And so, John, do not seal up the prophecy, for the final days are here. The end is near, and this message is to be an open secret for today. But what does that mean for us today? Well, it means that Christians will be marked by an obedience to God's word. We'll come on to that later. And it means that we shouldn't seal up such comforting words for the fact that we live in these final days and that Jesus' near should be an encouragement to us. For no wartime prisoner who trudges home does so without hopefully encouraging those who walk with them. They're almost home with their Savior. However, if you look at verse 12 here, There's a particular application for John's readers in regard to the prophecy not being sealed up. For there is something specific about these last days that Christians are to remember. For in verse 12, the voice of the Lord Jesus is heard for a second time now. And Jesus speaks into the fact that the time is near. And that people in this era will dress themselves either in in uniforms of evil or uniforms of holiness. For in verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Accordingly, friends, can you see how Christians are to wait in these final days? That the nearness of the end is an encouragement to John's readers and to us today that justice is just around the corner, that it is payday tomorrow for all, that Jesus is soon bringing many, many good things and that one of those that the best things will be his recompense, his unremitting justice against all those who dress in filth and shoot at those who are just trying to make it home. And friends, that's critical for us today, isn't it? Indeed, that message is a message that we definitely should not seal up, for that is often what our generation desires most. Indeed, as generations go, our generation is great, at longing for justice, Uh, for perhaps with even greater ability to see injustices today, our internet generation is much less happy to sweep injustices under the rug. 
And that is a wonderful thing. That is a godly thing. Indeed, for those of you who are slightly older here this morning, I hope that you don't sigh at a younger generation that often longs to right some of the wrongs that were ignored by past generations. But, but often because of that, what our, what my instantaneous generation is less good at is waiting for perfect justice to come. Many today love Jesus' proclamation about sentencing, but not Jesus' proviso of soon. For when it comes to injustice, many today want payment and not patience. Now, friends, let me be very clear on this. For Christians are not always called to just wait when they see evildoers doing evil. Christians are to lament injustice now when they see discrimination around the world. And Christians are to pray for justice now when they see evil thriving in their city and nation. And Christians are to even work for justice now when there is opportunity in their professions. We see examples in Christians like William Wilberforce who sought justice for slaves or Elizabeth Fry who sought justice for female prisoners. However, when Christians see injustice or experience injustice themselves, they are to be reminded of that ultimate hope that final justice is near, that Jesus the judge is coming soon, and that everyone shall be repaid. And Christians are not to seal up that wonderful message of hope. Christians are to remind one another that, that, that the battle is, is, is nearly at an end and that a war trial shall begin imminently and that everyone, everyone who has ever set foot on this earth will be sentenced fairly and rightly for every thought and word and deed. And therefore, I believe that Christians are not to be marked by a worldly desire to chase down every single injustice against them in this life. For my Christian friend, please know that in these last days, the Bible promises you that you will endure many injustices. In fact, that is often one of the sad themes of war and one of the sad themes in this book of Revelation. Sometimes in these broken last days, that the likes of Stalin, will die peacefully in their bed at a grand old age whilst a young Russian missionary is martyred. And if you're a Christian, if you're one who boldly follows the Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation says that you too can expect injustice. Indeed, many of you I know who are here even this day are misjudged by non-Christian family members who do not understand your beliefs and morals. Many of you here are marginalized by unbelieving friends because while they do evil, you do what is right. And some of you have even been maltreated by those who you thought belonged to Team Jesus and were fighting on the same side as you. And because of the undoubted pain of those injustices, and because of the instantaneous generation that we live in, many of us will be tempted to do everything we can to seek justice right now and whilst we might not seek malicious revenge, often we will do all we can to clear our name, and sometimes that may be right. But brothers and sisters, let me ask you, which injustices done to you in these final days 
Are you deciding to leave alone because you know that Jesus will make amends for all soon? Which injustice is done to you in these final days? Are you deciding to leave alone because you know that Jesus will make amends for all soon? What hurtful things that other people have done to you are you deciding not to defend yourself against? Are you deciding not to react to? Are you deciding not to gossip about? Are you deciding not to waste your short life with because you do not seal up these words, but rather you meditate upon them, upon the judge who is coming very, very soon? For friends, when the greatest injustice of all time fell upon him, when the greatest injustice ever seen on earth occurred, when the righteous judge himself was devastated, by a world of evil and filth, what was the mindset of him who we say that we follow? We've already read it this morning. 1 Peter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friends, when we are mistreated by the world, and we will be, just as John's first century readers were. We are to wait for wrongs to be righted, encouraging one another that justice will come soon and finding comfort in the wonderful words of the Lord Jesus, behold, I'm coming soon. How should we wait? Do not seal up the word. The time of justice is near. However, as we continue on this chapter, we see that there's also a third command uh, regarding the message of hope, a glorious vision of, of peace to come is given to John, and as a result, John is not to worship mere servants of the word, and John is not to forget that justice is coming. And thirdly, John is not to snub the word. Point three this morning, do not snub the word. Listen, come, wash. Do not snub the word. Listen, come, wash. When you're watching old-time uh, war movies, I don't know if you do that, uh, but how can you tell when you're watching them the difference between the goodies and the baddies? Well, Hollywood makes it rather easy for us normally, doesn't it? Uh, the guy with the perfect teeth and the New York accent and the big American eagle on his uniform is normally their allied hero. Uh, the guy with the messed up teeth and the British accent and the pointy-edged and a uniform is normally the double agent. But how do you know? But you know, in the reality of World War II, it's often hard to tell. It's often hard to tell who is who. In fact, when soldiers were, were bloodied and bruised from battle and, and uniforms became all worn and muddied, many soldiers had to use other ways of identifying who was on their side. And so Americans would ask each other questions about baseball players and state capitals. Indeed, there's one very amusing World War II anecdote of, a, of an American private uh, questioning a great general because he was not dressed in allied uniform, and that private then foolishly arresting that general when the general told him that the state capital of Illinois was Springfield when the private believed it to be Chicago. But in the most important realm of all, in the spiritual battle of this life, what is it that marks out who's going home? What, what is the defining feature of the uniform of Christ? 
Well, in Revelation, the uniform, which is mentioned time and time again throughout this book, is a uniform of glowing white, robes which have no speck of dirt upon them. And right at the end of Revelation, this white uniform comes up again as a reminder of what Christians do, what Christians do as they wait for heaven. For verse 14, look with me. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Friends, what is this washing as we wait all about? Well, the temptation in light of the context might be to think that our washing has to do with our ability to stay away from the world and all its filthiness. Or our temptation might be to think that those in Christ's battalion are are those who have now scrubbed their uniforms enough so that they may stand before their superiors. But you know, in Revelation chapter 7, we come to see that those who make it to the end Standing in the right uniform are not those who have sufficiently removed themselves from the world, having washed their uniforms in the laundry detergent of morality, but rather, Revelation 7.14 tells us, I saw the ones coming out of the great tribulation, coming through the war, and they were the ones who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Friends, how can we tell who is who whilst we wait? How can you tell who belongs to heaven whilst on earth? Well, the longer we stay on the battlefield, we may foolishly look for various spiritual insignia and badges of gifting on other people's uniforms. The temptation may be to start quizzing other people on cultural Christian things, perhaps uh, celebrated pastors and authors, the equivalent of the baseball players. Or we may ask them tricky theological questions, the equivalent of what is the state capital of Illinois, and, and think that we know. But friends, the true soldiers of God who stumble through the victor's gates at the end are those who have come to Jesus, the Lamb of God, and those who keep coming to the Lamb. Those who wait, wash their uniform in His blood and keep on washing their uniform in His blood. Perhaps to our great surprise, they're not necessarily marked by by great acts of heroism on the battlefield for Christ. In fact, they spend more time in the wartime laundry room, washing in the precious blood of Christ again and again and again. For brothers and sisters, I hope you know that Christians don't just wash their uniform once. Christians are not those who get baptized age five and then run off to earn medals of morality that they can proudly pin to their uniforms. No. Christians are those who repent and believe who trust Christ's blood, his work alone at the cross to give them access to the tree of life and who keep washing in that blood. Friends, the Christian life is is one essentially of, of constantly washing, not snubbing the word of grace as time goes on, but coming to Jesus daily in his word and saying again, please forgive me, please forgive me. And friend, if you are here this morning, And you've never done that because you think that you can scrub out all your stains 
with a little bit of church and, and a little bit of morality and a little bit of your own elbow grease. Stop. Let me call out to you as the Spirit in church does in verse 17 and say, come. Verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Friends, the freeness of salvation in Jesus' blood should not make you think that the stakes are not high. For my unbelieving friend, the stakes here are eternity. You see the stakes in 14 and 15. Some will enter the city gates and gain the tree of life. Some will be locked outside with the dogs forever. Friends, I know that to some of you, heaven and hell may seem but trivialities. And compared to the job or the relationship or certain thing that you just think you can't give up. I know that some of you may scoff at this passionate man before you, taken in by a Jesus who you just think is just a Galean carpenter. And I know that many of you have heard this call to come a thousand times as you have been dragged here by mom and dad. But at some point, friend, whoever you are, you have to come. You have to come before it is too late. That's the message of the Bible. For verse 16, Jesus is the bright morning star. The dawn of heaven could break at any moment. And what sorrow will there be for you then when you see that, that, that glorious light on the horizon and think the sun, you think the sun is going down on your life, but actually the sun of life is coming up. And that glorious everlasting morning that you could have enjoyed forever and ever is gone forever because it's too late. Friends, please, you must come. Not up the aisle, not into the pastor's study for a chat. You must go home. You must shut your bedroom door. You must go to Christ who will lovingly wash you in his precious blood no matter what you've done, friend. You may stand wonderfully in robes of white purity and happily play in the waters of life when he ushers in his forever kingdom. Friend, do not snub the word. Listen, come, wash. Do not snub the word. Listen, come, wash. And finally, last few minutes and with this we're done. Fourthly, do not supplement or subtract from the word. Surely I'm coming soon. Do not supplement or subtract from the word, surely I am coming soon. In verse 18, uh, this book ends with a final warning. As you can see there, the, the warning's for everyone. And the warning is all about not doing maths, or as you guys say, math, which may sound joyous to some students, perhaps amongst us, perhaps rather alarming if you're a statistician or you're an accountant. And yet the mathematics that we are warned in about not doing is simple addition and subtraction. For verse 18, to him who adds to the words of God, God will add to him the plagues in this book. And verse 19, to him who takes away from the words of God, God will take away his share in the tree of life. And there's obviously so much that one could say here, and our time is nearly gone. 
So why leave so little time for this final point? Well, my reason is, is that it's not very complicated, is it? While we wait for the new creation, we have to wait with Bibles open and ears open, but not with pens and whiteout open. Friends, in these last days, we will hear many, many voices. There will be many words that will claim ultimate authority upon our lives, whether that be the, the words of our parents, or the words of our friends at school, at college, or the ethical codes of our offices, or the advice of a pastor. And we are to rightly evaluate each of those words. For not everything that mum and dad says is right. Teenagers, you can write that down if you like, as long as you write down the fact that not everything your friends say is true. And we may add more ethics at work than what our bosses require of us. And we may subtract things from, from the advice of our pastors. But the somber warning here given to believers, which speaks of, of everlasting plagues, and a removal from the tree of life itself potentially remind us that we must never, ever, ever do that with God's Word. For as Christians wait, we're not to do a Thomas Jefferson who claimed to believe in God, but in 1803 took razor blade and glue to the Bible and literally pasted together his own version of Jesus so that he could make Jesus just a moral man and not the very Son of God who died and rose for his sins. But of course, if you're here, I imagine that you wouldn't do that. I don't many, meet many people at Edgefield Church who come into Sunday school with a box cutter and gorilla glue in hand. Now, the far more common thing that Edgefield Church must be careful of, that you and I must be careful of, is an addition which is far more artful and often driven by academic excuses, and a subtraction that is, that is far more subtle and is often driven by social sensibilities and standing. Friends, it is very easy to get very good at doing a careful cut-and-paste job on the Bible, saying to ourselves and to others, I think I, I think I should not be so definite with my friends. I think that passage is too disputed. Or, I don't think we should teach that at church. Paul may have meant that then, but I don't think he'd be saying that now. Or, I don't think I've been expected to do that in 2022. God, who, who gives good things, wants me to enjoy life. He wouldn't want me to give that up. Or, yes, I think he loves the gospel, and yes, he's godly, but I'm confused about why he's not also doing this. Maybe he's not a Christian at all. I think maybe she may have spoke in Bible study. He's probably only saying that because she's married. She'd probably do this if she was single or an Emmyogram 9 like me. I think I'll just upset my congregation if I preach that doctrine as clearly as that, I think I'll cut it from the sermon. Friends, from, from pastor to pew, let us not fail to see that all of us find it very easy to do the math, to add to the word, often in areas of our own proficiency, and to subtract from the word, often in areas of our own deficiency. 
And from the first century to the 21st century, let us see that no church has found it easy to read Scripture, to not read Scripture through the lens of its cultural and social bias. We need, friends, to keep asking God for his help to see and understand the truth and his strength to act upon it no matter the cost. For we are not to supplement or subtract from the word. And why? Why, friends, are we not to do this? Well, because, verse 20, he who testifies, he who testifies to these things, to this word, to the truth of God's word says, surely I'm coming soon. You see, the words that you hold in your hands here are not really some wartime editorial that brings you hope as you wait the golden age of peace to come. The words that you hold in your hands, friends, are the letters of your most precious beloved who you shall see very soon. And so, friends, all the motivation to do all these kind of fairly basic Christian things that we've spoken of this morning, worshiping God, waiting patiently for his justice, washing in Christ's blood humbly again and again, not supplementing God's word, not subtracting from God's word, all these things all the encouragement to set our life by that end should come from the final echo of our beloved. Surely, I'm coming soon. You see, when it comes to waiting for the new creation, it's not only that we are metaphorically stumbling home amid the gunfire, having been freed by Christ, but rather, just like all of those black and white photographs of homecoming amid war in 1945, it is that we are about to fall into the arms of Christ. And friends, whether that happens at your death, or whether that happens in this next de- decade, or before you've even eaten dinner tonight, at some point very soon you will see Christ coming. And the believing heart here, that the believing heart here this morning The heart that is really going home shouts for joy at that ending scene. It shouts, verse 20, Amen, come Lord Jesus, knowing that it has already all it needs for that homecoming. Verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus, the unmerited mercy and kindness of the Lord Jesus, which is with us at every step of the march home, where that march eventually becomes a crawl until we see him face to face. Surely, I'm coming soon. Surely, I'm coming soon. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we we thank you and praise you that we're headed home. Well, Father, you have promised to those who have come, to those who have come and drank from the waters of life without price, that they will make it to the end and they will see you face to face. And Father, our hearts are stirred by that final day. And so Father, we ask and pray for your help. That impending moment might help us to wait for the new creation in a way that honors you. Father, in a fleeting world where 
We have so many opportunities to worship false gods, other people. Help us to worship you. Father, in a fleeting world where, where injustice reigns, help us to wait for the judge to come. Father, in a, in a fleeting world where we are taught that morality and spirituality will be enough to send us through those golden gates at the end, help us to have the humility to keep coming to Christ, trusting in his blood alone. And Father, in a fleeting world which tells us to obey so many other voices, help help us and remind us that your word is everlasting, that it is trustworthy and it is true. And so surely, Christ is coming soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.